This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award-winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American-built, American-strong. Habit, our gear, your adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of DSC's Campfires. And I'm Larry Weissoon, but I have to tell you, I've got a truly special guest with me this morning, Dr. Mike Arnold. Now, Dr. Mike's been with us in the past, but he's been on another adventure, and I am so absolutely thrilled to have him back. So, Dr. Mike Arnold, welcome to the campfire. Hey, thank you, Larry. I appreciate it. You caught me in my uh, my professor clothes, so I, I apologize that I'm not in hunting clothes right now. Actually, I'm sad I'm not in hunting clothes right now, but this is my go to meet the dean and explain to him why you're such an idiot on a set of clothes right now. <laughs> I, I got a feeling it has nothing to do with that part, but it may be like, uh, I need to tell you why I need to be gone next week again. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Let's cut to the chase. There, there's a lot of things because I really want to have you back on here for too very long. But you've just gotten back not too long ago from a trip to Africa once again as part of the, the various projects that you're working on. Remind everybody where you went this last time. And I know in saying that there's going to be an article in Sports Field and probably three or four other publications about it. But where were you this last trip? So, Larry, I, I had one of my bucket list trips. It was, uh, I went to Cameroon. Oh, my gracious. I, I had always wanted to go. You and I have discussed this before. Yes, um, it's just, you know, you read about the place. It sounds exotic. And uh, it really was. But I wanted to go there. I wanted to see, I'm a biologist, and right. I wanted to see all of these absolutely amazing places and species and I work on plants a lot of my work so I'm one of those nerds who does that but of course I'm a hunter and I wanted to see the game species there and oh my goodness it was I was in the savannah area up in the northeast 
uh, near the border of Chad, and and it was just amazing, amazingly hot, which is <laughs> what you're about to have to put up with in West Texas too, or or Texas well, as well. Good, you had good training early on with that, so <laughs> I did. So that's where we were. That's where I actually went. I was there about three weeks. Uh, we hunted, obviously. I hunted. Uh, Buffalo and a bunch of other things. Oh my gracious! Uh, but we also uh, were involved in community outreach, anti-poaching. Uh, there's an article coming out in Roland Ward magazine. You mentioned oh, cool. uh, some articles about it, and that's a community outreach and anti-poaching story. And so it was. It was just a wonderful trip. It really was. Let's go back. You work a lot with plants, and as a biologist as well too. I love looking at the different plants and the different. Plants plant communities. Was there anything special about Cameroon? I've spent time in, in Benin and uh, Burkina Faso and Uganda, which is about as far north as I've, I've been in that area of, of Africa. Yeah. But in each one of those and in each one of those ecological areas, the plants were totally different. So I'm assuming the same thing was the case there in, in, in Botswana with you as well, too. Or in Cameroon, I'm sorry, Cameroon, yeah. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the interesting thing to us um, is that it's called uh, these concessions. Uh, they were, I was hunting with Mayul Deary, who's one of the iconic, you know that, yes, iconic outfitters there in Cameroon, has been there for decades. They call these concessions, and everybody does, they call them the Savannah River uh, area, sorry, Savannah area. Mm-hmm. Um but the thing about it is, a lot of people, when we think about savannas, we think about of Africa, and we think about grasslands. Um, and really, what these are, if you're a biologist, nerdy biologist, you call them open forest. Right, right. Uh, you know, so you do have some predominant trees. They're not miombos, but they are uh, legumes, like our mesquite trees yes, in Texas that I grew up around. Uh, and so they're really rich nutrients for the animals uh, who do go through their browser or pick them up off the ground, the beans up off the ground. So it's a, it's a mixture. It's a mixture of trees and grassland areas that are intermixed. It's not dense in this area. Uh, it's not like Katata uh, 11 in Mozambique. It's not a tropical area. Um, so it is a dryland. Uh, so it's more like what I grew up around in Abilene, Texas, out in the woods where you had a scattered mesquite trees and broom grass and Johnson grass and things like that. That's the kind of landscape you're looking at. Yes, sir. Now, the interesting thing is I, I know I got a photograph of a small antelope, but then I also got a photograph of a big, those are western savanna buffalo, I think. That's that, correct. That's what's interesting to me, too, since we're talking about the plant, different plant communities. You've got all these different stages or heights of plants, but you've also got the same thing in animals there, don't you? You really do. You go all the way, like you mentioned, you go all the way from these pygmy antelope. Uh, so I collected, a, you know, a red flank diker, but they also have bush dikers there. And then you go all the way up to, well, they have Derby Eland, which we saw, Lord Derby's oh Eland. Yes. Uh, of course, they have the buffalo uh, that I was able to hunt. And they have 
you know, cobs, which are sort of intermediate, which I was able to hunt, but they also have topies and all that. They have elephant in the area. Uh, sadly, those were, there was a, a poaching incident, if we can call it there, that where they killed out hundreds, if not thousands oh, of elephants. But those are those are supposed to be in that area. Yes, so sir. you go away from elephants, all the way down to pygmy antelope. That that to me is what's so cool about Africa. And I know you know I've talked a little bit in the past about uh, brocket deer down in the the, the uh-huh. lower end of uh, right before you really kind of get into South America that area. And there, those animals are small, too. And to me, I really enjoy hunting the, the little animals almost as much, well, probably as much as I do the big ones. Those little ones are so much fun to hunt, aren't they? They really are. I mean, uh, the uh, I, I have a article coming out on the, the hunt for the red flank diker in Safari Magazine. And actually, I combined the cob hunt and the red flank diker. And I call it. I call that red flag diker because I'm old and slow, basically. But I call that red flag diker just basically red smoke. Red you know, smoke. I mean, oh, I, that's all, basically everything. That's the only thing I saw until we finally caught a stupid male, which all of us are who are male, uh, caught a stupid male with his head in the bushes browsing. And so he didn't see us, but, you know, coming up on him. But uh, and he was he was beautiful. But, uh you know, they, I mean, hunting those little guys in everywhere I've hunted, pygmy antelope, that was my number 10 species, oh my gracious. pygmy antelope, everywhere I've hunted them. Oh, my goodness, they're difficult to hunt because they can disappear so easily. It doesn't take much to hide them. It's like looking for a jackrabbit. You know? yeah, absolutely. To me, those, those little animals such as that are, are truly, truly fascinating. The smallest one I've shot, shot the Dameland Dick Dick in uh, Namibia, and then the, I guess it's the Little Red Diker down in the, on the Eastern Cape. And, uh, of course, then I'm Stan Buck and, and some of the others as well, too. But you're ahead of me on, on, on numbers as far as the, the uh, different species are concerned. I've hunted a fair amount with Tim Fallon with the FTW Ranch, and Tim was one of these guys who, who he, he loves to take different animals. And so a lot of times, even though I wasn't the one pulling the trigger, I was right there beside him when he, yeah. he took one. And we were in Uganda several years ago, and there were grass buck everywhere. But wow. never standing still. <laughs> I, I think we we looked at many, many, many of them, and then finally he found a couple of them that stood still long enough to send a bullet kind of their way. And being the shot that he is, he took them. But again, to me, those small animals are so fascinating, particularly when you also have that opportunity to deal with some of the big ones, such as you did with the buffalo. And that buffalo mm-hmm. is a little bit different in looks, is it not, compared to most time when you mentioned Cape buffalo or or, or particularly Cape buffalo yes it it is i mean it lacks the boss um and you know that's uh that's the main difference that people immediately see uh as you move there's there's a transition and and other people have written about this uh but you see the transition going from south uh in the buffalo from cape buffalo uh and then as you move north and west uh, you see this tra- these transitional forms. Now, this is, you know, someone asked me, oh, is that the, when I sent them the photo, they said, is that a dwarf forest buffalo? And I said, oh, no, 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 hmm. it's, it's not that. Um, I said, it's, it's heading that direction, you know, 
body size and that sort of thing and, and horn configuration. But I said, no, no, that's not what that is. Uh, you know, it's a Savannah buffalo. The other part of this is, and, and I made it hard on my PH, but he was he was kind about it. Uh, Irve was his name. And Irve, I, when I got to camp, I said to Irve, I want a buffalo as red as my hair. And <laughs> my hair used to be a little redder. <laughs> as, yeah, there was a time as my beard was too. <laughs> so I told him, you know, I'd like a, I'd like a red buffalo. And uh, it, it's the, the problem with that is, um, as many of your viewers know, uh, it's like asking for a cinnamon bear, a black bear, or, uh, you know, whatever color black bear yes, that's sir. not black. A lot of times they're smaller. Uh, a lot of times they're, uh, well, first of all, they don't, they don't occur as, as frequently. But the same thing is, is true. It's a good analogy with the buffalo there that, when we would see herds, and we saw herds of buffalo, they were uh, they are very very populous in terms of buffalo in yes. this area, in the Savannah area. We would see herds every day, but most of the buffaloes we saw were black. And when you saw really? a mixture of herds, uh, sorry, a mixed herd, right, and it had red and black, or and then transitional forms between those, the reds were almost always smaller. Uh, not necessarily immature, but just smaller. The blacks generally were, if you're a, a horse person, I've raised quarter horses growing up. If you're a horse person, they were several hands taller yes. than the red, than the red really? buffalo normally. And that body size was smaller in the reds. And then the horn size might be smaller as well. I got a real nice one, but it was. Yes, you did. Uh, the photograph horn. is just phenomenal of, of an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous bull. Being yeah. a geneticist or being involved in genetics most of your life, whether it probably goes back to the years when you were in the horse business or growing up in the horse business, how does genetics play into, do you think, into the size difference there? I know there's the Bergman's rule that says the farther north you go, the bigger the animals would come to be able to deal with the cold. I would conversely think that would be the case when you start down low and start moving up that they become smaller. And that's probably one of the reasons why the buffalo farther north in Africa are smaller than the ones that are in deep down south part of Africa. Absolutely. As you move, as you move away from the poles towards the, as you just said, as you move away from the poles and towards the equator, uh, our mammals or, or sorry, internally heated things, uh, animals, uh, you know, do get smaller. Yes, and sir. so as you're moving into those hotter and hotter areas, uh, it, it just has to do with that biological rule. Uh, or you move south and right, they get right. larger. Or you move north, like you're saying, look at our white-tailed deer. I mean, that's that's what we all think about. Shoot, I got to get to Canada. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, to get one of those bruisers. So um, it is true. The, the interesting thing about the red and black, there's... Uh, I think it's a bit of mythology associated with them from the potentially from outfitters and and pH is not not and I don't know this for certain because I've never done the genetics on them but my guess is that there is a what we call a and you you think about this all the time Larry there's a polymorphism in there genetic polymorphism genetic variation yes, that'll lend itself to or cause the different coat colors and my guess 
This is a guess. My guess is those genes that cause coat color differences also link to body size and things like that. That's my guess. Now, the, the pH that I was working with, Herve did mention, he said, I think they, you know, as they get older, they get darker. And I, that happens. That does happen. The thing about it is, though, that I think the dark ones, the really large dark ones, the black ones, they are black, are on a different trajectory genetically than the red ones from Go. And I think they're going to be big and they're going to be black and the others are going to be red. That's my guess. But like I say, I haven't I haven't been able to. Uh, now, what I want to do is get money for somebody to send me back there. To oh, check absolutely. I want to hunt them every year. <laughs> <laughs> and be able to take more than one every time that you go as well. Too. There so, you, know, you, you go. <laughs> you, you can't just shoot one of them and say, "Okay, they're bigger because or they're smaller because." But you got to have you got to have a larger sample size. So I can appreciate that. And those buffalo, I've, I've hunted the western savannah buffalo, both in Burkina Faso and in Benin, and shot one in Benin. And then, uh, like you, I was looking. We had a fair number. I'd shot one that was red to start with, or reddish colored to start mm -hmm. with, and there were a couple of really big, almost khaki-looking uh, buffalo in that area, mm -hmm. uh, big old bulls. And when we were hunting in Burkina Faso, that's what I was hunting for. And we just never really could get onto the buffalo that we needed. They're always too far. There were cows behind, in front, all those other kind of things. So uh, I didn't have a chance to take one of those. But that buffalo hunting, it, it gets in your blood, as you well know. And whether it's Cape buffalo or whether you're hunting in that up kind of a little bit farther north there in Africa. It's so exciting. I mean, it, the worst part of going on a buffalo hunt is taking that buffalo and not being able to take a second one because now your buffalo hunt's over with. you got to go <laughs> got to go hunt something else, which isn't bad at all either, though. Let's talk a little bit about the culture. And I, where I'm leading to with all this, uh, I know that you're working on another book, and that's where I kind of want to finish this uh, later on this morning with. But what was the hunting culture like there? Because I know that's some of the things that you have a very serious interest in and also look at very seriously as well, too. So how does the hunting culture play into that part of the camera and where you were? So there's, you know, like in a lot of countries, uh, especially in Africa, as you know, there are parallel hunting cultures going on. So you have those folks who are, indigenous to the area, right. I would say, who have been there for thousands and thousands of years. And those then that came, who came in later, okay, like in Cameroon, the French and, and that sort of, uh, those sorts of cultures. Um, the indigenous cultures uh, there uh, in this area are like many indigenous cultures, uh, just like our culture was when we hit the east coast of North America from Europe. Right. We ate, as you know, we ate everything in our way and we cut down the trees to use for charcoal production or fire for warmth, you know, what it, cooking, whatever it was. Uh, so the indigenous cultures there are subsistence hunters uh, and for the most part. And so they will do bushmeat, they will do hunting, etc. And they are, you know, until they become convinced that they are benefiting from protecting areas, until they become convinced of that, 
that it's more worthwhile to conserve the biodiversity that's there. Until they're convinced of that, it they will poach it into extinction. They will cut down every tree. They will, for charcoal or for cattle feed or whatever it is, they will decimate the environment. So as you move in, as you drive, as we did for 12 hours the first time, and that was mainly my fault because editors are mean and they want me to take all these photos. <laughs> so I, I kept trying to explain to my PH, I'm sorry, it's not my fault. It's Diana Rupp, it's that's no me, no me. her fault. I bet I, if Diana listens to this, I'm going to get a phone call later today. But, uh, you know, the, the thing about it is that, you know, as you're driving, it's a moonscape. It and it's a moonscape for hours and hours. And I know you've seen this, Larry, hours and hours and hours yes, because it's not protected. There is no protection. But then you hit those concessions, those hunting concessions, and all of a sudden, everything's there. The termite mounds, the songbirds, the trees, the plants, and all of those game animals that you and I love are there. That has been overlaid by the cultures who came in, like my oil dairy, who are able to provide protein from the hunting to the locals. We delivered 200 pounds of, uh, of that buffalo that I took to a local boarding school at months of meat for the kids there. I mean, really months in terms of meals. Right. So, you know, you get them, you're able to provide that, you're able to provide employment, you're able to provide, we went to a hospital that hunters have paid for, we went to a school that's being constructed uh, by hunters. All of these different infrastructural and life, quality of life um, improvements are there because of hunting. And it always, I, I will say this as strongly as I can, it always works. It always works if it's managed, you know, well by these folks. If people who are the outfitters are pouring into the community, communities, it always works. It, it's interesting. There's some parallels. I spent some time in Baja, California last October hunting their version of mule deer. In that particular area, the, the, the landowners, most some of the most beautiful habitat I've ever seen as far as high desert type habitat, there are desert bighorn sheep in that area. Desert bighorn sheep are a huge economic benefit to those ranchers. So there's great management that goes on to ensure that the sheep do well in terms of habitat, in terms of food, in terms of the population kind of thing. Conversely, they could care less about the, the, that subspecies of mule deer there. So mm. poaching is absolutely rampant on that particular mule deer species there. And it's one mm. of those individual species that really can only be hunted in, in that part of the country. And one of the things that we were trying to do, as I know you always try to do in your travels, is to stress that there's a lot of folks out there who would be more than willing to pin spend time, spend money coming down and hunting these species. And if yep. there's economic value involved, as there is hopefully that we can push in terms of the, that particular subspecies of mule deer, 
that population, they'll start taking care of it. And guess what? We'll have mule deer and yep. we'll have rabbits because they're kind of the same way about the rabbits as they were the mule deer. It was hard to see anything at all there for on, on a bunch of that country. Yet the habitat is there. The food is there. There's subsurface water in places. And the same thing kind of I've seen in Africa. But as you just expressed, when you put that economic value to a species or mm -hmm. a culture of species, if you will, in terms of, of hunting being involved, guess what? It works. <laughs> it works. You know, and, and you and I have heard this, and it sounds like a uh, crass saying, but it really is true anywhere in the world. Developed countries as well as developing. And if it pays, it stays. It pays, and it, it, it stays. You know, it really does. And, and if we are passionate hunters and, and outdoors people, we really want to see this material stay and these these ecosystems stay so that our kids and our grandkids and and those indigenous folks who are there can appreciate, you know, the environment that they've been blessed with. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I mean, like you said, I mean, you have elephants to pygmy antelopes. We don't generally see that on a West Texas ranch, you know. <laughs> I love our West Texas ranches. Don't get me wrong. No, absolutely. But, but absolutely. we don't get to see that normally. <laughs> You're exactly right. Let's let's talk a little bit about, more about the culture in terms of food. Uh, to me, one of the things that's great about is learning about the plants. I want to learn about the people, but I also, where I can, want to try some different foods, maybe even from the native culture. Did you have that opportunity to do that when you were there? Well, I, I tell you, I took a, a photo that's in, in one of my magazine articles, Larry, that uh, that I sent to my wife, and she said, "Good grief, that looks like you know something you'd get in a French restaurant." Like, <laughs> in a French restaurant. <laughs> and I said, "Well, I was in a French camp, you know, I mean, was run by a Frenchman, so yeah, probably." But I have to start with that, okay? Okay. About some other stuff, but it was they took the tongue from my buffalo. They said, "Do you like tongue?" And I said. Yeah, my mama was from Memphis, Tennessee. We ate everything, you know, so right. when I was growing up. So they took that and they sliced it and they cooked it and they put put it on crackers and then little thin crackers. And then I'm seriously, it was more d'oeuvre for right. a French restaurant and then little pickles on top of it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm missing it right now. I'm telling you. You're but. making me hungry, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Where's breakfast again? But, but there's also, you know, everywhere we go, um, one of the things that I try to do, like you said, was to ask the locals, what do you eat at home? Exactly. And what, you know, what what do you eat? And, and a lot of times in the developing countries, and it was the same way here, we had uh, what I went and did was, you know, had fish caught from the local streams. Uh, we had meat uh, at times, but mostly in developing countries, it's protein limited, right? Exactly. You know, they're yes, protein limited. That's right. why it works so well when you distribute protein from hunted animals, because the locals are protein starved and normally. Right. Well, I had a lot of carbohydrates, you know, a lot of root vegetables, a lot of everything like that. And I love them. Uh, but that's, you know, some rice in the low, you know, in the further south and that sort of thing. So fish 
is one of the freshwater fish uh, where we were is one of the major animals, I guess, they feed off of. Right. They don't do a lot of red meat there, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because once they start doing that, it disappears. Uh, interestingly, I got to tell you something, being a being a Texan like you are and I am too, they don't eat their cattle. They really? never feed off of those cattle there because they consider them a bank account. So they can go through protein starvation, but they won't touch those darn cattle because they're owned by wealthier folks. And, right. and that's the bank account. They don't put money in a bank. They actually purchase more cattle. And then, you know, occasionally they'll sell some if they need they need some kind of income source. Right. So anyway, it was interesting. I was like, you know, you got a lot of cattle running around here. You could eat. If you said, oh, we don't eat our cattle. We don't eat our cattle. Oh, my gosh. Is there competition with, and the reason I say that is several years ago, I was in Uganda, and we wanted to go to a specific area of Uganda where the, uh, uh, oh, the East African Impala lives, which is a much bigger Impala and particularly horn-wise, a little bit body-wise, and we were not able to go to that area because according to our pH, there were something approaching a million head of cattle in that area with two tribes who were pushing cattle into this grazing area, and they were also arguing about who was supposed to be there and not supposed to be there. So to me, that too, sometimes, you know, growing up in West Texas like you did, or North Texas, and I lived in Abilene for several years, worked with a lot of ranchers, Cattle can be an absolutely great management tool, or they can have the negative effect too by just, just totally destroying the range, just like any other herbivore might. Yeah, and and it is one of the biggest challenges there uh, in this savanna, quote unquote savanna, and or mixed forest area, right. mixed forest savanna area is our uh, cattle herds, and so. Cattle pressure in that area is one of the major, and and repulsing that is one of the major anti-poaching, if you will, uh, activities that they have in their concession. So while we were there, we ran into a, a really good example of what that looks like. And that is they drive their cattle in and then they crawl up, climb up the trees and they lop off every green branch in the trees as they move through for cattle feed. Uh, it's the same thing that we used to do during certain time periods. We didn't we didn't kill the trees, but once again with mesquite trees where I grew up, we would, you know, for our horses and for actually, you know, just as subsidiary of uh, food, we would cut off some branches. Right. Pitch down. These guys go through, the cattle herders go through, and they migrate through an area, and there won't be a branch left on a tree. And so they decimate forests. And of course, once you cut those trees down, or or kill the trees, uh, once you do that, because you're doing it during the growing season, and so you're getting the those plants where they're not going to regenerate, so they're going to die, uh, those trees, right. then of course, all the understory is going to be uh, destroyed as well as cattle go through. So it really is true that the, the cattle herding in that area is one of the major pressures on these natural ecosystems. 
It's interesting. As you were talking about that, I remembered years ago and to this extent, I guess even now, uh, when times get really hard in South Texas down in the brush country, a big feed, if you will, is burning the thorns off the prickly pear cactus that's there. Right. And there are areas to where I used to, when I worked as a biologist down that part of the country, that were, what had happened was during the 1950s and then periodic droughts that that country has a tendency to have, they would go in and pretty much just destroy all the prickly pear. So a lot of the old time ranchers that I was dealing with, they said, what what can we do here to, to, to make things a little bit better? And I said, we're going to plant some prickly pear and they go we're gonna do what that's a prickly pear she says, oh my god but the prickly pear in, in most instances particularly down there is very high in vitamin a and of course it there's there's succulents there as well too so there's moisture but that particular vitamin a down there is very helpful in the digestibility of the native proteins that are there so we actually went back into some of these areas where they had burned out the pear for cattle and, and planted some prickly pear kind of thing so maybe that's something that can happen down the way here is the ecotourism and particularly from a hunting perspective, uh, maybe they'll go back in and start planting some trees again, or maybe they will adapt how they do things. I'm not sure that they will reduce the cow herds if that's the banking system kind of thing that they have. But maybe there's some there's some things there that can be learned that they can learn that will help not only the cattle, but particularly also help the wildlife. Well, and you if you think about it, if they brought in and, and I was talking to the outfitters and I was actually talking to national park folks there and then to some other government officials who are sort of their secretary of the interior. Perfect. I know yes, well right. there talking to him. And I said, you know, if you brought in some folks who knew how to run cattle yards and that even though you're not going to eat them, quote unquote, if you could bring some folks in to tell you how to grow sorghum or how to grow whatever you needed exactly. as a food source and to do it economically and they could make more money off of it, but they would then have to cap, you know, the number of cattle and that sort of thing. But you could right. also take the pressure off in the natural areas because your food source for those animals would no longer be these herds of migrating cattle going through the natural areas. They would basically be in pens or in very, very large pastures. So, you know, I was talking to them. I said, what do you think? And they said, we could see that people could transition to that mm -hmm. because they value their cattle so much. So that I think they're, you know, the transitioning is not going, like you said, I don't think they're going to reduce the number of cattle right. per se. Uh, but they're going to have to cap it if they're not going to eventually. I mean, they will go through <laughs> extinction of their cattle. They'll starve to death, right? Yeah, yeah. sooner or later that will unfortunately happen for to them, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've spent a little time in northern uh, South Africa, right along the Botswana border, and there mm -hmm. was an area there that we hunted for primarily for kudu, for big kudu, and uh, that entire ranch, which was huge, I can't remember how many hectares or, or acres, but it was like well over 100,000 acres kind of thing, and they had set up basically a, a, a 
a cell grazing system, kind of like the savory grazing system where you had these series mm -hmm. of pastures that you did, had huge amounts of cattle on, but there was very frequent rotation kind of thing. And the interesting thing that was there is the wildlife in terms of the bigger animals such as kudu and, and gimsbuck and, and even the, the smaller antelope, they were usually about three cells behind following because that's when you started getting all this little natural green growth and some of the, the brow species started coming back. And you wonder maybe if there couldn't be something like that set up to where they mm. could still have a lot of cattle, but uh, where, mm. where you had a rotational grazing system set up kind of thing, rather than just going in and destroying things as you go. Yeah. No, I think so. And I, I think that it's just a re-education, right? I mean, once again, if you think about it, it's transitional kind of from developing to developed or a middle-class kind right. of mindset. And it's not necessarily the middle-class that we think of here in terms of size of homes or whatever, right. but a middle class, all it means is that you have expendable income and you expend it on different stuff. So Francis and I buy a riding lawnmower where they're gonna buy solar cells or something, you know what I mean, or their cell phones or whatever, but they have expendable income. And once you hit that flip, once that switch is flipped, then people go, oh, I see what the benefit is once again. Right. Conserving these areas because all of these folks like Larry and Mike come in here and spend buku bucks compared to, to their income on uh, hunting. And we love it. You know, we're passionate about it and we're not going to give it up. And so they they see that, I think. And uh, well, I know they do. And then they go, OK, I'm being employed. I'm have my lifestyle is so different from my friends living somewhere else in Cameroon. I want to retain this. Absolutely. Which kind of brings us you're working on a new book that deals with hunting cultures in a way. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. I, I, I love your bringing back the lines. And the, ladies and gentlemen, if you have not, there, there's so many places you can get it. I just noticed the other day it was on sport, three sporting classics. You can, who, uh, we do a podcast there as well, too, called uh, Campfires with Luke and Larry. But uh, I got an announcement that you can now get Bringing Back the Lions by Dr. Mike Arnold there. So I'd love for you to go there. It is a fascinating book a lot about some of the things we're talking about here, but you're taking it a few steps farther now with the new book that you're working on. Kind of where are you headed with all that? Well, you know, I, I want to mention to your viewers that I'm speaking to the busiest man I've ever met in my life. Every time he texts me, I have to go lay down because it tires me out listening to everything you're doing. Uh, one of the things I do when I'm writing on books is I'm thinking about the next one. It drives Francis, my wife, absolutely nuts. You know, can't you just sort of enjoy this one you just put out last year? And I'm like, well, I do enjoy yeah, it. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so while I was writing Bringing Back the Lions, um, which, as you know, is, is based around that beautiful model in Katata 11. And, oh my gosh, yes. Stored, uh, how they've restored that area. We're actually going back in June to check up on the cheetahs and lions oh, cool. writing an update Fantastic. for uh, sports field on that. Right. They wanted an update. Excellent. 
And uh, so we're going to do that. So I love that area. But while I was writing it, I thought, you know, hunting cultures and conservation and community outreach is worldwide. And so the new book that I'm working on and, and the tentative title <laughs> and why I say the tentative title is because it's the, the, the main title is Many Paths to Eden. Now, every time I announce that title, editors and my book agent tell me it's an awful title. So apparently that is not the title. It's <laughs> not going to be the it? final title, right? Okay, we got that established. Later is all I can say. I guess right. I'm laughing with the But anyway, many past eat. And what I mean by that is I want to, what I'm doing is I'm examining the North American model, for example. Yes. So I hunted predators and pigs out in Oklahoma. How How is that how does that factor into conservation and community outreach? Hunted in Yucatan, you mentioned the Brocket deer. Yep. So hunted in Yucatan, you know, what are they doing down there? What does that look like in a more developed country than many of them in Africa, but still on that edge of developing than Cameroon, uh, South Africa, you know, in terms of African countries, uh, you mentioned Namibia. You know, and uh, in Mozambique, obviously, Zimbabwe. So taking a core of African countries as well, what are they doing in terms of conservation and community outreach through hunting? And then in October, and uh, uh, I'm glad my mom's not alive because she would have already come over here and slapped me. We're going to Pakistan for three weeks uh, in October, and we're going to go all the way from Thar Desert which is right up against, it's in the Punjab, so down uh, yeah. right up against India, all the way up into the Himalayas. We have a three-week trip there looking at actually the good, bad, and the ugly of conservation there in the sense that my contacts actually are going to take us into areas where they don't follow the law. OK, that uh, not necessarily, you know, these are, these are big landowners that hunt anytime they want. And so what does it look like? You know, what does that look like? And then go to areas where they are conserving the way that we would think about it, which yeah. is they follow game laws, they follow, et cetera. Uh, and then what kind of community outreach are we seeing? And, and there are microloans to women. There are hospitals being built. There are schools being built. I know all of that. And so I'm, we're really, Francis is actually going with me oh, too on that. Cool. That's She's fantastic. Really, yeah. She's really excited about that. And so um, I, Someone laughed. Uh, you're probably gonna you're gonna cut this out of your show, but nope, I, someone nope, said, nope. whatever you, said goes. <laughs> said to me, you know, Frances is Native American. She's she's Cherokee, and she looks it. So she can sort of pass as Pakistani. And then one of my friends looked at me and said. Oh, dude. And I said, uh, yeah, I'm going to be that really large woman in the burqa on the right of every every one of the photos. <laughs> I remember you telling me that. We were texting back and forth one night real late. I fell out of my chair when you said that. I'm going, oh, my gosh, because I had this vision. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be real courageous. No, no we, we have a really great uh, yeah, sure. host there, and we're, we're really looking forward to it. We're Really are. I think so, it's going to be an absolutely fabulous trip, by golly. <laughs> yeah. 
And that'll give us that'll give us an Asian uh, anchor as well, or Central Asia yes, right. anchor in this book. There's also the possibility we might be able to get to. We lived in Australia for six years, so I was sort of hoping to get there. But their their hunting right now is a little messed up with a number of different things going on there. Yes, sir. and then so we may try to get to New Zealand or something oh, like that. Oh, that'd be cool. To, mm-hmm. Yeah, to to balance it because there are very different models there in a lot of ways than what we see elsewhere. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I've, I've, I've been fortunate. I've, I've hunted Australia a few years ago and I was there as a guest and uh, got to spend uh, a fair amount of time hunting up in the, the very far north and North North Territories or whatever they call it for the buffalo mm-hmm. with uh, my guide with Robert Redford Jr. So uh, I'll let that kind of slide, but uh, I will also tell you he was not the son of the guy that played Jeremiah Johnson he might have looked like him, but he wasn't. <laughs> but an absolutely great trip at that point. But New Zealand is such a great destination in so many different ways. And of course, nothing was there that hardly wasn't a marsupial or a bird when they first started years ago. So it's a very interesting model and it's it's interesting watching the different attitudes toward those animals and from people and most of the the people who are opposed to having the animals there aren't from there. (laughs) Yep. That's exactly right. It reminds me a lot of of one of my favorite cartoons, not cartoons, but memes, if you will, whatever that truly means is, is uh, this, this village in Africa with about eight or 10 guys, very skimpily dressed as you would expect to be in, in the, uh, you know, in the jungle area. And they're sitting around a campfire. And one of them says, you know what I think we ought to do with white-tailed deer in North America. (laughs) And we've kind of talked about that in the past. So very often uh, to me, we need to spend more time allowing those countries providing information with good sound research information and then letting them establish some of their policies based on again good information and maybe not so much participation from people who live in uh, various large cities who have very seldom seen anything more than maybe a uh, a sparrow kind of thing (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a shame because we, you know, you know, I've been to some of the larger conferences where, you know, in in Mozambique, for example, in Maputo, and you listen to the trials that these folks are going through uh, who are from various countries in Africa, for example, the trials just to convince the developed countries like the U.S., like England, like France, like wherever you want to talk about, to continue to allow trophy imports, for example, and to not push back against, for example, you know, culling of elephants in, say, Botswana or wherever, Zimbabwe in, in areas. And to listen to people here in North America or the U.S. sometimes or in England, you would think they were, a, you know, very wise, and they're not. They do not know what's going on in the ground, at the ground level in these countries. Yeah. Yeah. And the decimation to, for both human populations in terms of losing all of their different kinds of food sources, income sources, but also to the ecosystems. 
when you don't cull animals, as you know, Larry, and when you don't control animal populations, they go through boom and bust. And what happens is that boom period where they have so many elephants has turned, for example, Botswana, most of its areas, many of its areas into a moonscape because they were not allowed to cull them. And because of political and philosophical viewpoints of outsiders, really, it wasn't people within their country. It was, we have to blame it on ourselves. Right. Developed Westerners, I would say. You and I are not in that camp, but no. still, it's our cultures who are doing that to Yes. To me, one of the sad things about all that is, and I have been in those areas in Botswana where the worst degraded, horriblest lack of habitat there is, is where there, were, <clears throat> there was nothing there but elephants at the time. There were no birds. There were no plains game. There were no small mammals. You didn't see anything but elephants. And that's what people don't realize sometimes is even though that elephant may be a quote unquote targeted species in a, in a certain way, if you don't manage those animals, it's all the other animals that suffer every bit and a whole lot more. And more importantly, it's the habitat that is, is destroyed. And then it takes many generations of animals, would, would be animal generations or human generations, to bring that habitat back again to where it was to start with, where if you'd just gone in and managed the species like you should have, you know, you'd have a, a very harmonious habitat with a very with a whole lot of different species, including the bugs, including the butterflies, including the birds, including the snakes. You know, the whole nine yards kind of thing. So, hopefully, with your book that you've done, the one that you're doing, and you know, the efforts that so many of us who are involved in wildlife conservation as hunters and supporters of wildlife conservation, you know, hopefully somewhere down the way, we've got a few people that listen to us. And if only a few will listen to us and use a little common sense, I think we'll turn some of these things totally around, if you will. I think so. And, you know, uh, some of my friends are more pessimistic. My hunter friends are more pessimistic about this. Uh, but I am not because I have seen... Uh, you and I have talked about it. I had a friend of mine who's, um, and, and you know, now they're going to, your friend, your uh, listeners are going to click this off, but I have a friend who's in PETA. She and her husband are in PETA, and she read, I know, guys and gals, I realize we're <laughs> not supposed listen, to. Have listen to this, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, Kathy and Wayne are good friends, and, and they know, if she doesn't go into my trophy room, I will mention. She doesn't like seeing uh, my trophies on the walls, but that's okay. Absolutely. Still friends of ours. But she asked to read this book, and I said, Kathy, uh, my first book, and I said, Kathy, you do realize there's some dead animals in it. Right. I said, it's really not a hunting book. It's about a book about restoration of ecosystems and human populations and that sort of thing, but yes, it's based sir. around trophy hunting and international hunting. And uh, she said, no, she wanted to read it. And she read it and she came over and she said, I want to, I just want to sit down and talk to you. And she'd taken notes. She's a teacher in years gone by. And, um, and she, her first words out of her mouth were, you changed my mind. And uh, when oh she said goodness. that, I yes. said, you're going to have to unpack this because I know you still belong to PETA. <laughs> she said, Mike, I don't understand the desire to hunt. And she said, you're passionate about hunting. She said, I don't, des I don't understand the desire to have trophies on your wall. 
But she said, I now understand that hunting can lead to biological restoration, ecological restoration, as well as build a better life for indigenous populations. She said, I had never heard that before. And I said, well, you probably won't on mainstream news ever hear, you know, that kind of a message. No, but I said, no. it, is, it is real. And that's why, Larry, I want to, you know, do another book and expand it out and use it like the first one. Uh, yes, you and I can enjoy it because we're hunters, but it's more designed for handing to someone like my wife, Frances, who goes with me on safaris, obviously, and is not opposed to eating meat or anything like that, but she's not a hunter. She shoots. She loves handgun shooting in particular, but she doesn't have any desire whatsoever to hunt. She's not an anti-hunter, but she just doesn't hunt. Those are the folks that I think we we can reach. Um, and I think those are the folks who make up most of our population in the United States. I don't think most of our population is anti-hunters. I think most of them are uneducated. I don't mean ignorant and, no, and no. stupid. I don't mean that. But uneducated folks who are non-hunters. And I think we can I think we have the opportunity to educate uh, like you do all the time. I, I think we have that opportunity, but I also think we have a certain responsibility to do that as well, too. Uh, yep. to, to me, that that's a big part of it. I, I used to not get on a plane looking like a hunter uh, if mm -hmm. I was going hunting because I didn't want to be confronted. I did. And then I got thinking about it. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm going to start. I'm going to play, not necessarily wear camo or whatever, but uh, mm -hmm. obviously you look like somebody who's going out to have a great time. And somebody says, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going on a hunting trip. to go. You're going to go hunting. And that gave me the opportunity then to explain, yes, we're going into this area because particularly in such in Africa, I've been on several of those hunts where we shot animals primarily to feed the local people. Yes, we had a great time doing it. We got some absolutely great footage and photographs and stories and all that kind of thing. But it gave me that opportunity to visit with them and talk as we did earlier about what happens when you have too many elephants. You know, what happens when you have too many of this kind of thing. So these days, I look for every opportunity not to confront to somebody. And I know that there's certain people I'm not going to convince regardless, but I'm looking for that individual who has got a little bit of open mind that will at least take some of this information that I might be able to impart, hopefully in an entertaining enough manner to where they listen, but take that information to heart and go, next time somebody says, well, hunting is horrible, and they go, well, not really, because this is what it does for the locals. This is what it does for the habitat. This is what it does for all the other animals that are there. So to me, that's part of that responsibility that I was talking about. I agree. I absolutely agree. And it can be, you know, I think if we take the pressure off of ourselves and just say, look, you know, we're proud of what we do. Absolutely. You know, we are proud to be hunters and and we don't have to be mean about it. We don't oh. have to be arrogant about it. But we can definitely share why we're so passionate about that lifestyle and just the fact that it has so many benefits. And, you know, there are so many benefits that we can highlight in a short, even a short conversation with someone. Absolutely. Mike, we're 
probably running into the time where you need to talk to the dean to explain why you're not going to be there next week. Uh, I, I, I want to continue this at, a, at another time. Let, let's look at a time probably about a month from now. And uh, sure. before you leave or whatever, we'll get together on schedules. And let's continue this because... You and I have talked about some other things in the past, particularly I want to go back and visit a little bit about your coyote hunt and a few other things like that. But in the meantime, folks, if you haven't already read, read Bringing Back the Lion, you need to. As I said, Sporting Classics is a great place to do that. And there's a website as well, too, where they can go to to probably get in touch with you, Mike, and order the book as well. So how do they do that? If they just type in, no spaces, bringingbackthelions.com, it'll take it to my website or that page on my website. And the, the difference there is now Sporting Classics is great because I actually, they have books that I've signed. Right, so exactly. The Sporting Classics, they can get a signed copy as well. They go to Amazon or a place like that, they won't be signed. No. But if you come to bringingbackthelions.com, I'll send them a signed copy as well. Oh my gosh. And I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy and appreciate your presence on the podcast and, and your friendship that's developed between us as well, too. And looking forward to where not we're just looking at the camera at each other, but looking across the campfire. <laughs> we're going to make that happen one way or the other this coming year or this coming fall. And I'll have to get you out in West Texas and we'll go sit on a hillside somewhere and pontificate for just a little bit and uh, maybe take a white-tailed deer. It's about time you get back to that part of the country. But I want to thank you so very much for being with us today. But more importantly, I want to thank you so very much for everything that you do for wildlife conservation and, and moving forward in the education side of things and just being the person that you are. Uh, you're such a pleasure to visit with and I've, I've watched you at shows and, and uh, you're the same person everywhere you go. So thank you for being <laughs> that way. Thank you, Larry. It's wonderful to be with you again. We'll have you back here. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us today. And we'll have you back here hopefully next week for our next podcast. Not sure where that's going to go, but again, Dr. Mike Arnold, thank you so very much for being with us today. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in the Grange and Roundtop, Texas, Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, H3 Whitetail Solutions, and Burnham Brothers Game Calls.